Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. These panels have been made possible thanks to Double Exposure and their game design convention Metatopia at Metatopia Online 2020. These panels have also been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and moderators at this event. Now, let's get to it. Episode 287 Designing Role-Playing Games That Don't Center on Violence Presented by Ash Kreider, Jason Morningstar, Mike Kaplinski, and Gian Shim. Um, all right. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to designing role-playing games that don't center violence. Um, my name is Ash Kreider. Uh, my pronouns are they, them, and things that you might know me from are uh, I am one of the co-designers of The Watch um, and uh, also a number of LARPs like uh, The Straits Are Not Okay. Um, and I will throw things over to my fellow co-panelists to introduce themselves, starting with Gian. Thank you, Ash. Um... My name is Gian Shim. Uh, I actually got my start in games at Metatopia in 2017. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, and you might know me from a recent Kickstarter um, called Wait For Me that I co-designed with Kevin Culp. It's a journaling game about time traveling for your own personal history. And I've also done a lot of independent design here and there, um, including uh, collaborating with uh, Jason Morningstar. Jason, you want to introduce yourself? Thanks, Gian. Yeah, I'm uh, Jason Morningstar, and my pronouns are he, him. Uh, I'm the creative director at Bully Pulpit Games, and you might know me from games like Fiasco and Night Witches. Uh, and uh, I will uh, pass it over to our other panelist, Mike. Hello, my name is Mike Chaplinski. Um, he, him. Uh, some of you out there may recognize me and know me as Croc because I used to do um, security at various uh, double exposure conventions. And although I have uh, had a couple of scenarios published, I'm actually coming at this more from the consumer side, shall we say, or, you know, the homemade side, because I've been dabbling in doing games for kids, and I've had some interesting realizations that I think might be valuable. I hope they are. So, mm -hmm. next. Um, awesome. Well, just a little bit about um, why I pitched this panel in the first place. Um, this is actually a panel that I've done twice at other conventions um, that I think has only gotten more relevant. Um, it's an issue that I started becoming aware of um, when I was uh, working on the watch. Um, given the reactions that um, people would have to that when they found out that there was no mechanic for interpersonal violence. Um, and I kept having interactions uh, always with AMAB people who told me that that was a problem. Um, and I began to realize uh, that it's really designing games that don't center violence and that don't even have a mechanic for it is seen as a very like niche area of game design, um, especially if you're not designing games for kids. Um, and I started to wonder, you know, why why do we have this collective limitation on the stories that we use role playing to tell? Um, you know, why is it considered such a niche thing? And and especially why are there some people who believe that it's actually a problem when a game doesn't have um, this kind of mechanic. So um, that's why I pitched this panel and I'm super excited to uh, talk to my co-panelists about this because I think they're all doing very interesting things uh, about this topic. So um, yeah. <laughs> Can you tell me what AMAB, <laughs> what the AMAB is an acronym for? Uh, sorry, uh, assigned male at birth. Um, so it was just something that I noticed that it was uh, all uh, cis dudes who were expressing this sentiment that um, if someone said it is a problem that your game does not have do violence to a person uh, rule, uh, they were always a cis dude. So, um, Gian, you had said that there was something um, that this was a there was something about this topic that particularly spoke to you um, in our, you know, conversation beforehand. Yeah, um, I can I can totally talk about it now. Uh, one of the things that struck me as I was thinking about this panel um, and specifically seeing the response to it, because it seemed like it got 
a lot of interest um, when I when I was talking about it on Twitter was um, how we think about violence and talk about violence and how I realized that as the the only non-white person on this panel, like I might actually be talking about something different because for me, violence isn't just combat oriented or like interpersonal physical violence or even just interpersonal emotional violence. Um, it's also uh, the impact and ripple effect of white settler colonialism to me is inherently violent. So for example, um, I'm designing a game with a, a friend of mine who's an incredible uh, artist and experienced designer, Shin Yun Kor. Um, it's a journaling game called Field Guide to Memory, and it's a, about um, cryptids, which involves like a lot of exploration and scientific names and stuff like that. And doing the research, there's like a big brouhaha going on in the birding society about taxonomic names that were given by European settlers and explorers to animals and plants that already have indigenous names or local names. And that's a, that's an act of violence, right? And so none of my games really have combat intrinsically in them, but also that's something that I, the other aspect of it, the framework of, of um, whiteness as, as kind of like inherently violent if you are not a white player or designer is something that I kind of always have in the back of my mind, but it doesn't necessarily become front and center. And so that's just something I wanted to make a little time to say explicitly because the way that I talk about my design might be different than than um, other panelists or other designers in the in the field. Um, yeah, that's a super good point. Um, so thank you very much for bringing that up. Um, you know that I I think that certainly resonates with my experience of recently. Um, you know, being a non-binary trans person, um, a lot of my game design the last several years has. Um, revolved around uh, exploring, you know, the the kind of um, binary um, colonization is not the correct word, but I'm very tired, uh, you know, colonization of, of, you know, gender that happens in everyone's brains. Um, and, and so definitely, um, I obviously can't understand your experience as, um, you know, a, a visible minority, um, but, you know, it, it feels resonant to me with my experience of, of um, gender in the games that I have been writing recently um, as part of, you know, I, I want to write nonviolent games have explicitly featured, uh, I'm, I'm just writing characters that are explicitly, if you play this character, they're, congratulations, you're non-binary. It's not an option, so. Hey, Gian, your, uh, your comments make me think about sort of the historic origins of the hobby as well, right? We're um, talking about uh, games that were certainly predicated on like the projection of power, uh, you know, conflict and adversarial interaction. War game. The, it was called wargaming for many, many years right, before people, right. you know, before the Dungeons and Dragons matured into its own thing. And so in the, exactly. And so like in the, in the same way that um, it's easy to center a colonial narrative uh, and uh, I acknowledge the implicit violence in that, uh, the, the, the games that, that, spawned the games that we play are, are coming out of that tradition as well. So it's not necessarily just a, like uh, a historical phenomenon or a sociocultural phenomenon. Like the, the games are hard-coded to, to support that worldview. Or at least uh, they were for a long time. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, oh, sorry. Go it, ahead, Mike. Oh, no, it, it, it's, it's one of the things that I've been thinking about, because again, I've been doing games for kids. A friend of mine wanted to run more D&D for his extraordinarily precocious at the time 10, now 12-year-old daughter and her friends. And I mean, she's precocious and she's wonderful and she's been playing a lot of D&D, but she's 12 and she's 10. So writing games for him, her and, and her friends, I had to think of things other than just combat because or combat, the way I approach I ended up approaching it was I like action in games. Historically, the easiest action to model mechanically has been violence. It starts with wargaming and it's gone through Dungeons and Dragons and all the other iterations, at least that I've seen. And I've played a lot of, I've played a lot of games over the years. Um, and it took me getting in my head to decouple violence from action. 
that's helped me do things that are more like cartoons because cartoons can have action and not violence. Um, and also Animal Planet documentaries about hunting animals, you know, like Crocodile Hunter or games where people are, or games, shows where people stalk animals. Those can be just as intense as anything in, say, a war movie or a crime drama. And with, and again, I've been, I've been sticking to Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition for a variety of reasons. The mechanical system that they have for that is now not just a combat system, it's a task resolution system. And you have to think when you're making a scenario in ways other than violence. You know, you're overcoming a challenge, whether it's a physical option, uh, obstacle, or talking to another character. You know, if, if they're either the character is talking to a, an NPC that you're playing as the dungeon master, or moderating the discussions that happen between the players. And that's part of your job is to make players understand that you don't always have to hit things. You can think of other ways. I mean, I think that's an excellent point, and that's why um, I'm increasingly interested in, you know, what's happening in the indie space, not to... No, I, I understand. Um, not to yuck anyone's yum, um, but, uh, you know, what I have experienced as someone who's been designing games for a long time now um, is, you know, players will do what the mechanics are, so whatever mechanics you give them, that that's what will happen. So in a game like Dungeons and Dragons, where you have hundreds of pages of how to do violence to a person and oh, yes. maybe five of how to not do violence to a person, you know, making yes. that kind of change um, takes a lot of work on the person running the game and also a lot of explicit social contract with the players whereas i almost feel like it's it can be easier in you know the indie space to be more mindful of if i don't want my players to do a thing i'm not going to give them a mechanic True, um, but uh, but at the same time you know people like to break stuff and one of the reasons that oh sorry john oh, no no um please I, I love to hear the the complete thought oh um it's you're absolutely correct. Even as, even though fifth edition, which is my personal favorite of all, and I've been playing it since AD, I'm since I've been playing since 1979. So I started playing D and D when it was just the Monster Manual and the Player's Handbook. The DM's Guide hadn't even come out. And one of the things that I love about the way the game has progressed mechanically was making everything just overcoming a challenge whether that's combat but having said that and even though fifth edition has a lot more robust non-combat stuff you're absolutely correct the vast majority of the mechanics of the game are geared towards inflicting hit point damage mm -hmm. but whether it was conscious or not the way they've made their task resolution system you can extend it and Again, I'm I'm sticking to fifth edition because my focus is more writing stuff for that I can mm -hmm. run for kids and you know their parents and my friends. Um, but yeah, I'm impressed. I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed, you know, by things like fate. I mean, I love fate because fate for me is a good bridge between the crunchy stuff that I'm habitually used to sure. and the concept um, of other stuff. Sorry to cut you off. I'm just mindful that we're, you know, we only have a limited yeah, amount sorry. of time. And Gian had wanted to. Um, uh, that finish, so please. <laughs> yeah, I actually, um, it's interesting because I, I have a background that I think actually touches on what, some stuff that you're both saying, right? Both about um, how when you design for anyone, especially kids, um, they tend to, as you said, want to break stuff. And also uh, the thing you said, Ash, about if you don't want something in the game, don't put the mechanics in there for it is just like, it. it synthesized um, my old job, which was for six years I worked as an outdoor educator um, who taught wilderness survival skills to kids through LARPing. And I did uh, the program coordination for it. I took over the role about two years into my time at that company. Um, and, you know, uh, very quickly, like teaching kids outside, if they pick up a stick, you know, they might 
start with a fort. They might, um, you know, do creative stuff with it. At some point, though, it becomes a sword or a gun, right? Like kids, kids want to play out the things that they see, including their sense of adventure. And this is kind of what I meant about like colonialism is violence, right? Like even something like exploration. Exploration is adventure, it's discovery, it's exciting. And also what does that mean in a framework and a cultural shared history where a lot of exploration for huge demographics of people means devastation and the destruction of their way of life. Um, an eight-year-old is not gonna be thinking about that. And honestly, as a designer, I don't think it's, always appropriate to like write into a game by the way these activities you love draw from a, a genocidal background like they're, they're kids right but there's still ways that you can incentivize other kinds of play and so for example when i took over the program coordinator and designer role there it was a given that at the end of every week of summer camp there would be this huge battle and it was awesome they were they were fun but there are always some kids who didn't want to do it and it was a logistical nightmare. So like for me, because I love making my life easier, I started shifting things into like, okay, staff instructor would look at their group and be like, what do you want to do with your kids? What do your kids want to do? And what came out of that was a more intense combat mechanic system around healing. The druids um, started doing things like in order to heal someone, you had to actually find a plant in the wild that had real healing powers like touch it and then touch the person you're healing. They learned about physical consent. You always had to ask permission before you touched someone's arm or hand. Um, they uh, also like um, would sometimes act as like literal physical boundaries between a kid who was really scared because someone was coming at them with like a sword and and the person running toward them. And it was always a given that if if like a druid cast a ward, the combatant had to back off, like no matter what. And this is an artificial space because it's children playing supervised by adults, but those principles have absolutely held in my design work and also importantly, my facilitation work with adults who, again, like grew up in a culture where uh, adventure equals exploration and violence, right? Um, and I think uh, it's totally doable as long as um, you remain open to the idea that as you were saying, Mike, like you have to think of other things as equally exciting. How do we as designers get players to the point where they're thinking of something like finding plantain herb in this mown lawn just as exciting as like wailing on somebody with a foam sword, right? It can be done. Mm -hmm. Oh, and it's, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I just, what that makes me think, Gian, when you say that is that the whole idea of um, conflict is really a designable surface, right? Um, that we have the ability to, to I mean, we're creating an experience, we can tune that in ways that are going to be mutually beneficial, that are going to be, uh, um, uh, that, that are going to promote whatever values we, we espouse, right? So like I was hearing that, I'm like, you, you managed to combine botany with consent, right? Which is so cool, right? That's, uh, and, and I think that, that that lesson is equally applicable to, to what we do, like for adults, totally. Oh, putting it in the framework of uh, um, dealing with uh, children or a children's game, I think is um, it, it, it's important, but not uh, essential, right? Like the stuff that we're doing for other adults is is uh, well, there, benefit. There are far too many adults who still need the lessons that we teach to children mm -hmm. these days. And I'm not um, going to say I'm not one of them. <laughs> so, Jason, um, you were actually one of the people who has been most influential on me in terms of becoming interested in this topic in the first place. Um, I'm curious to hear about like, what games have you been working on recently? Uh, like, like what, what tech have you been playing around with in your game design recently for kind of addressing nonviolent game design that uh, interests you right now? Thanks for asking. And, and I, I'm, I'm glad that I was an influence. That's cool. Uh, so I, th I think about this, um, when I approach a project, I, I really want to let the project tell me what it wants to be. And sometimes what it wants to be is a completely gnarly, uh, game about, uh, survival cannibalism, right? And it's, it's going to be a game that, that foregrounds horrific violence and th that's what it is. And, uh, it has other, uh, you know, inflection points and and nuances and meanings, but like I'm not going to take the violence out of that game because that's the game it wants to be. Uh, 
but that's a question to ask. And I think in many cases, the inclusion of, uh, of violence or even the inclusion of conflict is reflexive. Uh, and what, what I would argue is that uh, as designers, we should take a step back and make that one of the questions we ask uh, about a project and sort of uh, have a conversation with the project as it develops and interrogate that. Uh, is this a game about conflict? Often it is because conflict is super fun, uh, but not necessarily. Uh, is this a game, if it is about conflict, does that conflict include violence? Often it does because violence is rad, but uh, in, you know, it's, it's gotta be, uh, it's gotta be appropriate and it has to have boundaries and it needs to be a good fit for what you're trying to design. So like recently I made a game called Space Post and Space Post very deliberately is not about violence and it's very little about conflict. Uh, and uh, it gets around that by giving you tasks to do, right? You've, you've got these interesting things happening and it becomes a game that's about managing uncertainty and it's about discovery and delight, just in the same way that Dungeons and Dragons is, you know, D&D is all those things, but it, you're, but it, it, it turns the dial way down. You're just playing a space postman. Uh, and so, so there's no room for violence in the game. It just doesn't, you're a postman. You're, you're, you're a letter carrier. Why would you, in what circumstance are you going to be uh, in a life and death fight? It's just not going to happen. Uh, mm -hmm. And, that, and, and uh, um, so like in that case, that's what the design told me. And uh, I think that that was a good choice. Uh, that's an example. I could give others, but I think that's a good one. Um, one of the things I was, a, I, I actually played recently played a game of space post and it was great. And one of the things I was a fan of is um, somewhere in the instructions, either in the game or maybe I, just hearing you talk about it. I, I remember you saying like, uh, always make the stakes smaller. Um, and uh, I think I, I'm a big fan of like that kind of meta instruction to the players about what the story is going to be. Um, I think in the beginning of my design life, I didn't want to railroad my players. And now I'm just becoming <laughs> a really big fan of, <laughs> of uh, like the game I'm designing right now, uh, our traveling home, which is uh, about uh, queer wizard romance and found family. Like I just straight up say at the beginning of the game, this game's going to have a happy ending. And at the end of the game, these two playbooks are going to have a happy and successful queer romance. Like, yeah, that's wonderful. Nobody's, yeah. nobody's going to get fridged. Everyone survives and like everyone has a happy and functional family at the end of it. Um, because yeah, I, good for you. I, I think, um, you know, it kind of gets a bad name, uh, but I think there's a lot of utility as designers for just straight up telling people, you know, this is, you know, being explicit about what's on the tin and saying like, this is what this game does. And if that's not your jam, cool. Bye. <laughs> Go play something else. Well, no, I mean, you so can, I mean, you can use a, a screwdriver to hammer in a nail, but I wouldn't advise it. So there's no, when you make a tool, they have an, it'll, it'll have an intention. So, I'm such you know, a, sorry. Please. Um, yeah, Ash, what you're saying, I'm, I'm such a big fan, not just in games, like in life of like telling people what I'm looking at and what I think I'm seeing. Um, and, uh, you know, like that, that comes directly from instruction. A lot of how I facilitate design games and just interact in the game space is like heavily influenced by like group management and educational, um, practice from, from my work and, uh, and like telling a kid like, yeah, we're going to play a game about plants and it's going to fucking rule. Maybe not. I'm sorry. I swore, but it's just going to be really <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I forget that I can't do that on, on streaming. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and I think that there's a lot of power in that too because it's collaborative power, right? It's, it's a, a field that you open up to let people join you if they want to. And again, if they don't want to, they can just opt out. Um, and that's really- And also, I, I, I imagine there's a fair amount of satisfaction when you tell someone, this is a game about plants. And they don't believe you. And at the end of it, they're like, this is the best thing ever. <laughs> That's cool. Um, yeah. And Jason, uh, what you were saying about conflict being like enticing. Um, I think that there's a way that you can also frame conflict, not necessarily as adversarial, 
the adversarial between like person to person or character to character, but also just like situationally. Um, and I'd love to talk about one of my games that I think uh, does that, but I want to give other people a chance to, to say other things they might want to first. I, I was going to say the same thing because that's something you're really good at, right? Well, thank you. So, yeah, you're, the, so you're, love- you're, you're the game designer, so please, I want to hear um, more. Especially if there are plants involved. <laughs> there are, sort of. Um, uh, uh, oh, let's see. Um, the first game that I wrote where I looked at it and I was like, I am really proud of this, was a game for two players called Your Dead Friend. It's a little real. I'll just tell people right now it deals with uh, death and, and mortality and like a lot of rumination on it. The premise is that um, there's there's two characters. One uh, is called the dreamer in the text, and they um, are aware of what's happening around them, which is that their friend uh, is going to die the next day. But you've somehow been caught in this loop. You don't know. Like it's never explicit in the test in the text for a reason, whether it's like a dream or a time leap or whatever. But you know that no matter what happens, the day after today, your friend is going to die. And um, you just keep coming back to this one day. And the game takes place over taking a walk with your friend and your last conversation with them. Game ends when you tell your friend that you love them. And there's a lot of mechanics for like calibration, being able to take a step back and actually also rewind the clock and even like reset um, the time loop, basically, if you try to warn your friend or stop that from happening, uh, the f- player playing the friend will say, like, pause, and then there's a mechanic to basically rewind. Um, there's, like, a trigger sentence. Like, uh, I think when I play tested it, uh, I was the friend, and it was, I think there's something stuck in my shoe. And we ended up rewinding, like, two or three times, and each time it was, like, really intense and very emotional. It's two players, so you would think um, a central, like, tension would be between the two of them, right? Like the two of them butting heads somehow, but it's really not, it's a connective game. And the tension and conflict is around like inevitability. It's around mortality. Um, And I wasn't necessarily thinking about these things very explicitly while I was writing the game. I was just thinking like, what would be a granular, interesting way to get people to be really present, like 100% present in whatever moment that they're playing in a way where they can notice the outdoors because I envisioned this game always happening outside, always happening on a walk. Um, And I think there's something in the text about like, if you're at a loss for what to talk about, like notice a tree, notice a bird, um, talk about what the weather is like, something like that, something to ground you physically in the, in the natural world or the outside world. Um, I love this game. Um, which feels funny to say about something I wrote, but I really do because it's it's short, it's straightforward, and it's so loaded that there's no combat and there's no fighting or, or conflict between the two people. And I think it's a it's a pretty straightforward illustration of if you want to design things that get away from the idea of um, violence as a prime source of adventure or excitement or whatever, um, there are ways that you can literally pit yourself against circumstance. That don't have to be, you know, the way that we've been raised to think. Um, and, and I think that having more games out there is is really a, a good thing for the industry as well. Yeah, especially games that are not that are more improv theater than they are, you know, winning and losing at winning or losing. Period. Something I uh, wanted to to say about uh, uh, your dead friend, Gian, that I think is a really good lesson to take away as a designer is that when you, when you put in those sort of um, uh, guardrails, when, when you say, if this is happening, then do this, you're really priming play, right? You're priming the players about what you expect as a game designer for the experience to be like. So you had a, a choice there. And the choice could have been, I don't even talk about it, just do whatever. If it's awkward, it's awkward. Uh, or you could say, if there's a silence and you need something to talk about, talk about talk about your cars, right? Or talk about what's happening in politics. But you choose very deliberately to say, talk about the natural world, which is, which is, uh, which is priming players to play the game that you want them to play, even if they don't have to use that. Uh, and I think that's an important point. Uh, and in Space Post, I do the same thing. There, there are long pick lists. And no matter what you pick, you've had to look at my list. And my mm-hmm. list is telling you what the game's about. Yeah, I mean, um, I think the other thing um, 
and this kind of returns to something that you said, Gian, at, at the beginning, is um, we're used to thinking of um, conflict uh, as being, you know, we're used to thinking of conflict as being necessary to tell an interesting story. Um, and uh, my current game is explicitly, you know, uh, influenced by stuff that doesn't follow that. Uh, you know, um, there's an entire Japanese genre of cinema, you know, I'm thinking Studio Ghibli movies, uh, where, you know, like, uh, there's, there's no discernible conflict, and they're still great and super compelling. Um, you know, so um, I'm... I think that's also a good thing to keep in mind is that, um, you know, definitely as, uh, you know, English speaking North American game designers were also influenced by um, that cultural tradition that kind of says that anything that doesn't have conflict isn't interesting. But I think uh, your good friend is a super interesting example uh, that kind of um, puts the light of that. And, um, you know, it's something I'm exploring with um, our traveling home, which I feel is important to acknowledge. Um, is 50% a hack of Stewpot uh, by Takuma Akata, which is uh, a game about uh, former fantasy adventurers um, starting and running a tavern. It's it's so great. Uh, I cannot say enough good things about that game. Um, but you know, like there's there's things where you know you do weird chores, like wizard chores. What do wizard chores look like? Um, and it <laughs> you know, in, in my game that I'm creating. Um, and it's great. Like I've, I've run it several times and every time, like that's one of the ones that people are like excited to do and everyone has fun. Um, Can I ask you a question? Uh, so, so Ash, um, you've played with me, you know, that, <laughs> that I'm, I'm always looking for trouble, right? I really want to, yes. I want to, um, I want to <laughs> knock over the apple cart. Uh, when I play, yes, you do. <laughs> uh, and and I, you know, I, I'm I'm respectful of making sure that a game, the game's intention matches my intention. I'm not going to play a game that, and make it not fun for people, but I'm I'm always going to look for that. So if I'm playing, uh, you're traveling home, uh, and that's my impulse. What happens? Uh, can I mess stuff up? Uh, are, can I create conflicts? And if so, does it derail the game? I mean, I'm the sort of person where I'm interested in having the low stakes, wholesome moments interspersed with moments of personal tension because um, I find that often those moments of personal tension are how you can create personal growth, um, especially if you are intentional and explicit about it. So, um, I mean, definitely you wouldn't break our traveling home specifically. I mean, there's a character, uh, actually that you probably would greatly enjoy. Who's the monster, uh, who used to be, uh, you know, either a demon or a witch or a, a wizard who used their magic to hurt people and now is completely powerless and is just a dude, you know, oh, that's or still my jam. Yeah, and they have to—they have to come to terms with you know the fact that they use their tremendous power to hurt people and learn how to you know actually form attachments to people. Um, so, but you know, like because of who they used to be, they're they're definitely still going to be kind of a dick, especially at the beginning. So, uh, yeah, that that totally—I uh, mean, at least for that game specifically—and um, and I think. It's helpful to be mindful of the fact that a lot of people do enjoy playing that way, and I don't think it's necessarily wrong. Um, yeah, especially if, um, I, like, you've always been super respectful about it, and I've always enjoyed playing games with you, so. Oh, yeah. I, I, I would hope. I would hope. Something <laughs> else I wanted to, to point out, and, and Mike, this might be relevant to you, but I find that my uh, my nephews are the most bloodthirsty craving yes. richest people in the world and that if you give them those tools that they will use them i had i, I believe me that was and not to be stereotypical behavior as i said it's my friend's daughter most of her friends are girls and i've heard horror stories i used to play um the living greyhawk organized play you know back when living greyhawk was a thing and the most bloodthirsty tables i ever did were like families where it was like a mom and daughters <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it was great. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it was it was just wonderful to say that you know 
beyond gender, we are still human and you still want to, some people just want to whomp on orcs and things, but that's not, that's a different panel. Uh, but you bring up an interesting, an interest, there was a, the last game I ran for them, uh, I specifically put in an encounter that was intended to be more cartoonish and, and funky. They were basically on a field trip. They're, they're, they're students at a, a school for magicians because the daughter loves Harry Potter. And I'm like, that'll get her involved. And the kids had gotten separated from the parents and they were walking through the woods and they found uh, a, uh, a glade with glowing mushrooms. And so the kids were trying to approach the mushrooms. And of course there were pixies and brownies who were, who were playing tricks on them. And at one point, one of the, the, one of the players had the choice of either hitting the, the Fay brownie over the head and stealing the mushrooms or cooking the mushrooms. And if he did a good job, good enough job cooking them, they would give him the mushrooms. Um, so he had an in, internal, I, di I didn't tell him which one was the right choice and he made what I thought was the right choice. Uh, and I should also footnote that his character, when I, he'd never played any role-playing games before and I asked him what kind of character he liked in media to model a character. And he, he loves Gordon Ramsay. So he was playing a barbarian Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> and you, uh, completely on his own, he said, I could poison the mushrooms or spray. You know, he had he had wanted bug spray because he doesn't like bugs. So he's like, I got bug spray. He's like, I'll cook the mushrooms instead of poison them with the with with the uh, with the bug spray. And he rolled well enough on you know his whatever role. I I don't know what the heck skill I use, but he made the right choice on his own. And everyone had a lot of fun. It was funny, and also. If he had poisoned all the, the things, he wouldn't have gotten the clue that led them to the next encounter. So mm -hmm. he made the right choice. So hopefully subconsciously he'll know cook the mushrooms. <laughs> Ash, do you think we should take some questions? Uh, yeah, that uh, that could be a good idea. Uh, we've got um, we've got a moderator looking at questions for us. Uh, hello, the oh. first question we got is from Genesis of Legend, which is, what are some of the challenges associated with the traditional social combat me mechanisms that use emotional or social violence as the resolution me mechanism? That is a solid question, Jason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if I could, if I could just put in just my two cents worth on that, again, I, I think one of the reasons, as I, as I think I may have mentioned briefly before, one of the reasons combat has always been a focus of role-playing games because it's easiest to quantify. You can, you can, you, you will get a good sense of hit, you know, hit points are a good representation of how beat up you are, but we don't necessarily have a good sense in the social, you know, in your mental aspect, except for things like magic points, but that's not quite the same thing. Mm -hmm. I'd love to know with the phrasing of this question, like when it says, what are some of the challenges associated, um, whether they mean, uh, whether Jason, uh, Pete means um, designing those games or using extant systems or, or what. Um, but I, I, did, I did immediately think of Trash Pile. Um, uh, I don't know if you want to talk about it too, little Jason, but um, we, uh, the two of us, <laughs> made um, six very short games where the main mechanic is is picking up trash, and like because you can't exactly fight, you can't fight. Like, why would you fight when you're picking up trash? Like in real life, that's a bad idea. <laughs> so, um, all of the tension is social, um, and uh, I, I actually I don't know if I mentioned I play tested this game recently, social distanced with some friends, and it worked out really well um, because you don't really want to get super close to each other if you have trash anyway. Um, we had those cool creature grabbers and it was awesome. And I did notice though, that the tension felt very high and there was a, a clear system of mechanics around it. Um, and people had a very satisfying time. I don't know if it's a replacement for other systems that have like tables and charts that show you exactly how hurt you got. I think those are two different styles of play. And so if you're talking about how do you address challenges, I think you need to define the, the, technical framework that you're looking at a little bit more before you can talk about it in more depth. Um, I think, I think decades of, um, especially uh, not to knock trad gaming, but this is where we see it happening the most, um, definitely does prime um, players to view social interaction through that combat lens. And it can lead to outcomes like um, 
you know, when I first started gaming, uh, my the first game that I played was uh, a vampire LARP. And um, yeah, look, man. Uh, no, 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 no. I, I, I've known a lot of people who played vampire. I yeah. know. I, 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 I can read your mind. No, I got it. And I don't mean but that in any bad way. When you when you view social interaction through that same you know uh, zero sum combat kind of lens, um, it can be real bad for issues of consent. Uh, you know, I had a situation where I had a character get manipulated into being in a hot tub with someone when I didn't want that situation um, because I lost 13 social challenges in a row. Uh, and it never occurred to me that I had the option of just saying, like, look, man, I'm not I'm not doing this. Uh, but I was this 19 year old uh, woman appearing person at a vampire LARP. So I was like, OK, I guess this is what's happening. Um, which is why I am much more a fan now of, you know, when I design for personal conflict in games, um, like putting parameters on it, um, you know, in, in the watch, there's explicitly a move called resist the shadow, where if anyone does anything, um, you know, toxic or intentionally harmful, where uh, the rules kick in and even other players can call you on it. And, you know, basically, you uh, you hit pause and you have a conversation about it, and then you know some some rules kick in. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, at the very least, uh, that social combat, you know, kind of thinking uh, like approach to you know how to design for personal conflict, it, it could be real bad for consent um, at the very least. I think that's a really good point, um, and I guess from from my point of view. This is it's again a a situation where you need to question your assumptions, right? It, it's a it's a kind of violence, it's a kind of projection of power. Um, is it any different from stabbing somebody in the face? Maybe not. Like if you're playing fate, it's not any different. It's it's exactly the same, and and that's a choice that the, that the designers made. Um, so I, I think that there are many solutions, but they all involve thinking about it rather than making a reflexive choice based on what everybody's doing. I think there's also, um, I don't know, in, in the panel description even, there's sort of like two different arenas that overlap quite a lot, but there's uh, how do you decenter violence in games as a player? And then there's how do you decenter violence in games as a designer? And, mm -hmm. um, you know, as a designer, it's about how do you create a system where if violence is, is present, it's not the only or central option in resolving a conflict or um, making a story juicier. And as a player, like I, I'm kind of like you, Jason, I actually also really love rocking the boat when I'm when I'm gaming as a character. Like I love pushing my, my favorite tabletop system is Monster Hearts, right? Which I think is self-explanatory <laughs> for people who use the system. I've I have heard of it. I I have I have a good friend who had been away from role-playing games for literally decades. And he just when when Monster Hearts, he is a monster. He plays Monster Hearts more intensely than we played D and D in high school. That's how much he loves Monster Hearts. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it an is. intense game because a teenager is intense. Um, but like also with my teaching background, like I'm kind of like so many things that you've said, Ash, are very resonant and and you as well, Mike. Because like I really just don't want to push past anyone's boundaries, and I need a framework to know if in character it's okay to make. Uh, the other character upset um and there are a lot of systems that that like have these gorgeous carrots dangled in front of me of like a cool conflict scene or dramatic scene but without that scaffolding for like is this cool with the actual person who's like in the virtual or literal room with me i'm not gonna i'm just gonna default to not doing it even though that's like not you know the the exciting choice and so i think um designers and players we can both be looking at the same thing and and have like very similar hesitations coming from both perspectives and so i think design has been and going forward will like sort of address that that focal point a lot more of like how do we create scaffolds where if violence is a narrative choice that you want to make how is it both a conscious deliberate choice and also how do players communicate with each other diegetically or not that it's a cool choice for both of them that will be mutually satisfying. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, and this leads to a whole discussion about safety, safety and consent, right. really. 
which um, is for another time, I think. Yeah, the one area that me is not really a designer like you guys or people are is because I do when you do home games, regardless of the system that you use, you presumably will know the people. So you will have a sense, even if you don't explicate boundaries, you know your players and the players know you. So you know what how far away you can how far you can get. You as as designers writing something that you will be played by people that you don't know, you don't have that luxury. So mm-hmm. you know, in that that sense you, you have my utter ad- admiration because that's that's why yeah. you guys are designers, and that's why I got, you guys are pros, and I'm just a an amateur. <laughs> Take another uh, question. I mean, I yeah. Let's let's do another question. Uh, all right, we have one here from B Smirched. How much of player need for conflict is about seeking violence versus seeking competition or otherwise? Uh, Sorry, Laura. Can you repeat the question. Absolutely. Um, I just lost it. Sorry. <laughs> What's it? Oh, I accidentally deleted it when I said it. How much of player need for conflict is about seeking violence versus seeking competition? Oh. I mean, my gut reaction to that is that a lot of players are just used to seeing seeing competition through the lens of violence because that's how culturally it's presented in, you know, movies and stories and media and just how we think about things. Um, so I, my gut reaction to that is that a lot of people maybe aren't even consciously aware of that association and that's, um, you know, why conversations like this are good so that people can, you know, kind of decouple that automatic association and say, well, you know, maybe what I want is competition, but I, I don't, I don't want, you know, violence to come out of it. Um, if that makes sense. No, I mean, that's why I had said I, I've, in my mind, I decoupled violence from combat because combat implies that there are rules in a framework whereas violence is just hitting someone if that may, if that makes any sense like boxing is violent but it's also combat whereas i hit a guy that's just violence that's not boxing a subtle difference but again that's just my me thinking out loud there are also um rule sets where um violence is competition and competition yes. is violence, and and the the two are conflated, and they're sort of a, a monolithic option. Quite often, it also it also gets to the kind of games that people are drawn to play. Sure, I, f- I feel like maybe that's a question that we can talk about more after the panel. Yes, uh, <laughs> maybe get some more clarity on where that's coming from. Yeah. So could we get another question? Uh, yeah, here's a more um, specific one, perhaps. From uh, Diano Corgi, speaking more on the design end of things, do you find it easier to design resolution mechanics about specific actions, jump, persuade, cast a spell, or general action areas, like mental, social, technological? <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I left myself on mute. I do this every day of my life. We heard you. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. gotcha. we're, we're oh, all I muted myself afterwards. We're all oh, we, thinking we, really we, hard about Dino Corgi's question. <laughs> um, we'll find it in the chat because I didn't hear you, but I know that we're running out of time. Um, oh, it, uh, well, okay. So just brief, brief I, I'll answer that very briefly. Uh, I prefer things to be as broad and open-ended as possible. Uh, just as a, as a preference, I trust the people that are uh, playing my games and I want them to be able to make interesting choices because they're smarter than I am. Okay, yeah, I, I found this specific phrasing. I, yeah, I think, A, I agree with you. I, I prefer to write games where I feel like I can trust players even if I'm not in the room with them um, because I don't want to be in the room with every single person who's ever playing a game I've written. It's impossible. And um, I also like feeling like people are autonomous and can and can calibrate themselves in their own groups. 
Also, I don't think I've ever designed a, a game that's like jump this many points or like uh, swing this many or like whatever, because um, I have a really hard time parsing those systems as a player. It's only very recently that I started playing D&D, for example, and it's because I have a, my friend is DMing the game and he's like, I love numbers and I will do it all for you. And I'm like, <laughs> Yeah. That's what I want. Um, so, like, I, I find those systems honestly kind of not alienating, but it's an immediate opt-out for me because it it's stressful um, because I just don't have a great head for math or, or short-term memory. So when I design, it's it's usually out of what I like and what I find comfortable, which means I, I rarely use those very granular mechanics. Yeah, yeah i be honest. The simplicity of the math of 5th edition of D&D is what led me to do it rather than Pathfinder. <laughs> I mean, you know, my answer is very much biased by the fact that I design LARPs and, uh, you know, when I design tabletops, I design for Powered by the Apocalypse specifically because uh, what interests me isn't the, you know, how well do you jump? It's what what happens when you jump. If you if you jump off a building, do you, you know, how well does that how well does that go for you? What are what are the outcomes? Um but also, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, definitely what Jason said about, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather trust my players. Um, I think there is a phase of playtesting uh, that is very important where you, can you get the players to understand what the game is and what it's supposed to do? And once you've gotten to that point, then just leave it in the players' hands and let them do what they need to do with the rules. Um, yeah. How about uh, another question? All right, uh, this one's from Clark Valentine. Part of the fun of in-game conflict and violence for my players is about taking risk, making tactical decisions, and creating uncertain and unexpected outcomes. What RPGs do you think do a good job providing that without centering violence? And I'll throw on uh, from the chat that looks like some people are very interested in things that are designed for campaigns as opposed to just one-shots. Clark, um, that's a great, super good question. I just wanted to throw that out there. Please go ahead and answer. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna name check Jason. Uh, I think Night Witches is is, uh, is a great long form game uh, for that. Uh, and uh, I'm gonna name check myself a little bit, but um, you know, The Watch is also a game explicitly about fighting military campaign against an oppressive evil force. But uh, I stole all the good stuff from Jason, so uh, <laughs> at least in terms of modeling the military campaign. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, those are both, um, you know, both Night Witches and The Watch are games that are kind of about violence, but also not, um, in that they're really not, you know, designed to model interpersonal conflict outside of the, you know, fighting on the battlefield. It's more about those personal connections. Um, so I think there's definitely ways to, to still have, you know, stories about uh, fighting and tactics and strategy, but uh, like also very much intentionally center like personal relationships and interpersonal dynamics. Yeah, I would agree with that. And like, if you're playing night, which is right every night, it's just a sort of series of die rolls that create a narrative. And then you're back to the game you're not really focused on the horrific total war part of it as much as you're focused on the other more interesting stuff. Um, uh, the other, uh, answer i think to clark's question is to um play a game that's more uh sort of more wide open in terms of theme and tone and then agree as players to do that so um my go-to game is archipelago but there are many uh systems that, that would accommodate that really well if as a group you just had a social contract that said that's what we want we're interested in super interesting dynamic situations lots of uncertainty discovery surprise danger but we're not interested in fighting. I think this again gets back to kind of like, how does this panel address um, questions that come up as a player versus as a designer, right? Because like yeah. as a designer, you can't really design for strong rapport unless again, it's like, that's the thing you say is like intrinsic to the mechanics, um, which some of my games actually do. Uh, but as a player, you could take any system and be like, we're gonna roll with this in our own way, but no fighting, right? Or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just, I, I'm sorry I have to say this because it's such a perfect segue. Uh, my friend, our friend, Steve Segetti, last night said, yeah, I, I made up a new D&D &D character last night. He's a Noel detective. 
And I was like, you are, you are swimming upstream, buddy. Swimming upstream. I, I, I loved it. Oh my god, I want to watch oh. Steve play that. Game. I mean, no. you know, in the game, in in the game that I run for my friends, the the principal of the school is really a gold dragon. The assistant principal is a Medusa who is trying to reform, and she's a veterinarian. And Awkward. they have well, no, it, it it's actually very cool because you know it gives me a whole bunch of options for this. The the the, the principal has hooks for the for the main my my friend's daughter who is a sorcerer with with dragon blood having you know the uh, I've always I have long wanted ever since I read the game Blue Planet which is a game that is like the hamlet of role playing games for me because it is such a broadly conceptually wonderful game that there's no way to summarize it has a very strong ecological component and one of the things that you can go, with that game go out and do is go out and just find weird creatures on this planet and I brought that into my game, and that's why I have a Medusa as a veterinarian. She's the scary, she's the scary prince, the scary assistant principal in the school. It's worked well, we very well. We want to try and answer one more question yes. super quick before we pimp ourselves and where we can find our stuff, because that is also important. Uh, all right, from Zen Barrel Maker, is conflict synonymous with challenge? What would collective challenge me mechanics look like if violence wasn't available as a resolution pathway? Uh, oh God, I hate name checking myself, but I'm going to do it. Um, so I don't think go for it. You know your own stuff best. <laughs> I don't think conflict is synonymous with uh, collective conflict. Is select. Um, I don't. I don't think they're the same. Um, you know, and in our traveling home, I explicitly have uh, mini games where characters come together to do things like improve the house or. Um, you know, recover from a disastrous situation or, you know, uh, just do wizard chores, you know. Um, and they're inherently not conflict-based, but they require working together um, and having moments of personal connection and things can go badly, you know. Um, you can get a symbol wrong and blow up all the windows and then have to spend your afternoon sweeping up glass or irritating things like that, right? So there's there's still things that can go wrong that are interesting, but they're still not about conflict. So you can, and that's not to say that collective challenges conflict is is bad. It's It still can be interesting, but they don't have to be the same. Yeah, I don't think, um, I, I absolutely agree. Conflict is... 100% not synonymous with challenge for me. I know we're coming up on time, so I'll try to be short, but like um, puzzles are challenge, uh, emotional quandaries are challenge. Um, uh, it's it's so, challenge is like such a huge umbrella and, and conflict is just one small piece of a very large pie. Um, we can eat the rest of that pie. It, there's a lot of options out there. We can talk about it more after the panel wraps too. Yeah, for sure. Uh, real quick, where can people find you and give you money? I'll go first. Uh, you can you can find me at bullypulpitgames.com or um, on Twitter at bullypulpit underscore HQ. Uh, awesome. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at wondergeek. Um, I, uh, my role-playing games are peachpantspress.com and uh, the game that I have been referencing repeatedly are Traveling Home, uh, hopefully coming to Kickstarter in February 2021. Hey. Uh, you can find me um, on Twitter at uh, twitter.com and then my name, which is on all of my handles and also right here on Discord and on Twitch. Um, uh, my Patreon is also under my name. Um, and uh, the games I referenced, um, Your Dead Friend, is on my itch.io store, also at my name. I got that SEO on lock. Um, <laughs> um, uh, on Twitter, I often talk about stuff in development, and my Patreon is also um, increasingly my storefront, so a lot of stuff will be more available there. And the collaborative game that I referenced, Trash Play, is I believe on Bully Pulpit's Patreon, which is excellent, and one of two Patreons I subscribe to, so I John, highly recommend thank you, thank you for that. Yeah, I'm, thank you so uh, much. I'm just you know, real quick, I'm on Facebook as Mike Chiplinski. Currently, my avatar is me dressed as Danger Mouse circa 1985. Um, and 
I'm actually going to promote something by a friend of some things by a friend of mine that I think are excellent nonviolent uses of the D&D 5th edition rules book. Her, her name is Judy Black. Um, you can find her on DM's Guild. Um, the two ones in particular are something called Arcana Depot, which is a bunch of magic shops where you can go in and interact with the shop owners and get magic, cool magic stuff. And Arcana Games, which is a magical fun fair. And it's, it's a magical amusement park or a, you know, a magical arcade games you can Sounds use really in your fun. campaign. They are very, she also does an excellent thing called Swordbreaker Mine, which has the coolest map I have ever seen. And that's all I'll say. Look for Judy Black on DM's Guild. They're all PDFs. They're all worth it at three times the price she charges. So. Well, this has been great. Thank you all for, yeah, you all for letting me really sit fun. in with y'all. It's so good to meet you, Same Mike. Here. And Ash, it was so good to see your face on my computer screen. It's yes. been a while. Yes. It's nice to see all of you. Always good to see you, Jason. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you all so much. And yes. thank you for organizing yes. this.